Um, I'm uh, <clears throat> honored to be here with you tonight. Uh, if you are, have attended any of the men's ministry uh, breakfast in the last, the Band of Brothers breakfast in the last few months, you've probably heard some of what you're going to hear tonight, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm here, is Carl asked me to, to come teach what I taught there here. So, um, you know, so if you're, if you're hearing it for a, a second time, well, then, you know, the, the Lord, I was going to say, the Lord, the Lord either thought you were hard of hearing the first time or, <laughs> but um, really, it is, it is great to be together. If you're like me, you may have had just a tough day today. And uh, you may be fighting the battlefield of the mind right now just to even pay attention to to anything uh, without the thoughts of the day creeping in, and, and I know exactly what that's like, uh, particularly today. So I'm just going to ask the Lord to, uh, to, to be with us right now. So Father God, you're so good to us. You love us so much. You're the good, good Father, and Lord, we are so appreciative and thankful. Lord, we, um, we're thankful that we can come here and be surrounded by other believers and worship you together and just focus on you and your incredible love for us, uh, that while we were still sinners, you died for us, that you care about every hair on our head, uh, just an amazing thing. And Lord, that you, um, you know the cares of the day and you ask us to lay them at your feet because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So, Lord, uh, those of us who are struggling with the events of the day, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would, um, you just would fill us with your Holy Spirit to overflowing, and we would just be filled with joy tonight in the opportunity to be together with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So last week when we were together, we uh, left off at the, we left the Last Supper, we headed across the book, Brook Kedron to the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw Jesus arrested, and we saw him brought before what was the equivalent of the Jewish mafia. We saw Simon Peter's courage and his cowardice fighting with each other as he couldn't quite be all in, the all-in man he wanted to be. We started in John 18 last week, and the the question, the key question we examined last week was the one that Jesus asked Judas in the garden. And he asked it of those who came to arrest Jesus. He said, who is it that you're looking for? And it's a question that serves as the theme for this whole last part of the book of John, and it's, who is it that you're looking for? And you may remember in the garden, the arresting soldiers responded, Jesus of Nazareth. And Christ responded back to them. He said, I am. And you'll remember that when they had said Jesus of Nazareth, we looked at that and it was a pejorative name. Uh, they, it was a name to kind of put him down because they weren't looking for the Messiah, for God's son. They were looking for an imposter because nothing good comes from Nazareth, as they all knew. And <clears throat> everyone knew the Messiah was to be from Bethlehem, and this guy could not be the Messiah. They were looking for the Jesus they wanted to find, one who had no claim to divinity and therefore no claim on them. 
They were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, just another guy. But Jesus wasn't going to let them get away with that. He replied, I am, self-identifying as the I am, saying, you haven't found Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you're looking for. You've instead found God. You found God. And then after they had literally been blown away and knocked over by the power of those words, Jesus gave them another chance. He asked them again, and they still wanted Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, not the God of the universe. Then we talked some last week about Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas and how their family controlled the religious establishment and and the religious government, and they were as if they were really like members of the mafia. Annas was the head of what was kind of an organized crime family almost that ran an extortion racket at the temple. And Jesus had crossed them repeatedly, and now they determined he was going to pay for it. So they'd had him arrested, and they had him brought to them. And we're going to pick up with the ongoing trial of Jesus, which we saw last time was not being conducted in accordance with the rules of court or with the Mosaic law. So we're going to revisit verse John 18, 24. So start with me in John 18, verse 24. So verse 24, then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And we know this is all taking place at night. From Matthew's gospel, we learn that Caiaphas was not at the temple court, but he was at his uh, a private residence instead of being at the temple court where the law required this kind of trial to take place. And it was still night. And it was illegal for a trial to take place at night or in a private residence. This was supposed to be out in the open for everyone to see in the temple court. It was supposed to be a public trial, and yet they're holding this secret trial at night in a private residence. So the very trial itself before Caiaphas, with all of the Sanhedrin present in Caiaphas' home, was illegal. And these were the high priests and religious leaders, and they were violating the very laws and rules of this trial that were laid out in the Torah. They're violating, they they would accuse Jesus of things like, what, violating the Sabbath, right? By having his men pick grain or he healed somebody or what they were doing was just as bad. They were violating the law by throwing this illegal, corrupt trial. And in addition, there were bribed witnesses, corrupt judges, another illegal attempt to get Jesus to testify against himself. And then when he wouldn't do that, they criticized him and beat him for his refusal to testify against himself and for his demanding that the court just follow the law. All he was doing was asking that they obeyed God's law. And they beat him and criticized him. And we could go into a lot more detail, but for our purposes here tonight... We just need to know they did everything they could do to rig this trial against Jesus. This was rigged from the start. Rigged against Jesus who had done nothing wrong. The result they wanted was to see him dead. And they passed a sentence of death on him. You know, the law also required 
that a full day intervene between the conviction and a sentencing and gave everybody time to think about it, pray about it. And instead, what did they do? Here's another illegal thing, a legal barrier that's discarded in an attempt to get rid of Jesus. They convicted him and they passed the sentence right at the same time. Everything was hurried. Why? Everything was hurried because Jesus' appointed hour had come. It was a time that he had set. They thought they were hurrying the trial because they wanted to hurry the trial. They were hurrying the trial so that it could be done on the time frame that God had set. Well, since Rome now appointed the high priest, and since Annas wanted to maintain his family's position with Rome, they decided not to execute Jesus directly because instead they wanted to follow Roman law and send Jesus to the Roman consul, the Roman governor, Pilate, to carry out the sentence. So I think it's fascinating that we have the men who are supposed to be God's people willing to disobey God's law, but following Roman law when it comes to Jesus. Disobey God's law, but they'll follow the the government. Everything is cattywampus here, right? Everything is backward and upside down. There is no justice here at all, no justice. And I think it's important for us to see this because it is not justice that brings peace. Justice does not bring peace. Christ's crucifixion was unjust in every way, yet peace between God and man was the result. The injustice of Christ's death is what our peace comes from. So even when there was no justice, there was peace because of God's mercy and Jesus' sacrifice. You know, in our lives, we can get really caught up in things we think are unjust, right? Injustice angers us, particularly when it happens to us, you know? We hate it when someone does something to us and they don't get what they deserve. Or when someone gets what they don't deserve, we probably like that just as bad, you know, just as little. We can be like those 2020 summer crowds, riot crowds, chanting, no justice, no peace, right? But justice often brings conflict, whereas mercy brings peace. In fact, justice, we think about it, you know, we, in America, we had the Hatfields and McCoys, right? They were all out for justice, shooting each other. Back in ancient, in medieval England, they actually had to pass laws to, to, um, to put a payment that was due if, you killed, if somebody in your family killed somebody, then, then you could go, if they, if they killed somebody in your family, you could go demand payment from them just to stop people from killing each other over justice. It's, it's, all it did was create conflict constantly. Justice, more conflict, more conflict. Peace comes from mercy. We should be desiring mercy, the mercy that we've been shown, not justice, which is what we've been spared from. So verse 28 The Jewish leaders then took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. This is Pilate. By now it was early in the morning, and so to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out and asked, 
What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Trust us. He's a criminal. But it's amazing how all of a sudden these guys are religious again, right? When it suits them. They were violating the law all night long. Illegal trial, violating the law. But they obey the law in the morning when re by refusing to enter Pilate's palace. Why? Because they wanted to eat the Passover dinner. <laughs> they wanted to eat dinner, so they were religious enough to be able to eat dinner. It's like they said, I can violate the law all night long as long as it doesn't disturb dinner. I hope our priorities are better than that, that we aren't obedient to the Lord only when it suits us. Well, Pilate can see he's being played here. You know, they've come to him, they've said, we want you to execute this man. We're not even telling you what he's guilty of. He can see he's being played here, that something's going on. He was a pretty keen operator. Uh, and he was treading on some thin ice uh, since he'd not been very respectful of Jewish laws and customs and it had gotten him in trouble with Rome, with the emperor. Remember that in the Roman Empire, Caesar was worshipped as a god. He was self, a self-declared god and he was worshipped as a god in the empire. And the Jews rightly viewed this as idolatry. So previous Roman consuls in Pilate's position had been really appreciative of this. The banners and flags that the legions carried and the Romans carried had little busts of Caesar on the top, the false god. Well, the previous governors had removed those busts of Caesar before they would come into Jerusalem uh, so as not to be bringing foreign gods into Jerusalem and offending the people. And Pilate just poo-pooed this. And he's like, forget it. I am not going to accept their superstitions. And so he had not removed the busts from the flagpoles. And he ended up with a riot. And then protests followed him. He, went, he left Jerusalem, went back to Caesarea, and the protests just came. All the people showed up in Caesarea, and there was a huge rally and protest. And so then he came out, and he threatened to kill them all. So they appealed to Caesar. And Caesar sided with the people and told Pilate to clean up his act. This was not the way you governed one of our provinces. And so it became very clear to Pilate that one more slip-up and he could be in real trouble. I mean, Judea wasn't the plum assignment to begin with. So, you know, there wasn't much place you could go down from there. But wherever he was going to go down, wherever that place was, that was where Pilate would end up next. And Pilate knew the Jews hated him and they wanted him gone. So he immediately suspected, suspected a trap here. He was being put up to something that could come back to bite him. So he, he wants no part of it. So verse 31, Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus said about the type of death he was going to die. An interesting fact that the idea, uh, the fact that the Jews had no right to execute someone should have been an indication to them to look out for the Messiah. It had only been a couple of years before, in AD 30, that the Romans had taken away the right of the Jews to use capital punishment. This was widely, widely viewed by Judea as removing the scepter from Judah. 
in violation of Genesis 49.10, which said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So the scepter won't, the right to rule won't leave Judah until the Messiah comes. It was clearly a messianic prophecy. But instead of them viewing the removal of the scepter as a sign that the Messiah was here and they should be looking for him, they viewed it as a sign that God had broken his word to Judah. And there had been in 8030, there'd been all this grieving and wailing and protesting and God has abandoned us. He broke his promise to us. Rather than look for the Messiah, the promised Messiah, they believed that God had broken his promise. The sign had been there, but the leaders had just missed it. And so now they needed Pilate to approve the execution because it was now illegal for them to execute anybody, and they didn't want to execute Jesus and upset Rome and lose what power they had. So verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, and he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? To me, this is an interesting question that goes right back to the same question in the garden, isn't it? Jesus is really asking Pilate, who is it you're looking for? Who is it you're seeking? Is it your idea that I'm the king of the Jews? Who is it that you're seeking? The king or someone else? She's saying, do you think I'm the king or are you just parroting someone else? Do you really want to know who I am? But Pilate doesn't take the bait. He's given the opportunity to choose Jesus, but he's not interested. He responds in verse 35, am I a Jew? Pilate says. Today, Pilate might have said something. He might have answered that question by saying, do I look like I care? I think that's the kind of the modern-day equivalent of his response here. Do I look like I care? I don't really care who you are, but what have you done? Why are you in my court? Why are you taking my time? Pilate responds, your own people and chief priests handed, handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Well, notice how Jesus answers this. He, he doesn't respond to Pilate's second question. He skips back. He doesn't respond to what have you done, but instead he goes back to Pilate's first question. Who are you? Are you king of the Jews? He goes back there because this is really the important question for Pilate and for each one of us to answer. Who is Jesus? You know, A.W. Tozer said, he said it right. He said, what comes to our mind, into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So how we define Jesus is the most important thing about us. Is he king? Is he Lord? Or is he not? So Jesus answers by telling Pilate who he really is. Instead of answering his question about why is he here, he tells him who he really is. Verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
You're a king then, said Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. Don't we want Jesus to make, don't, don't we want to make Jesus' kingdom of this world sometimes? Don't we sometimes wish his kingdom was of this world? I mean, don't we hope that an election will change everything? Don't we hope that we'll have health and wealth and recessions and wars and injustice will end right now? Isn't that what we all want, right? Don't we say, if only, if only. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. In fact, his kingdom seems to grow fastest in the places where there's the most persecution, where his kingdom seems the furthest off. Well, here in America, where we probably have the most Christian-influenced nation in the world, his kingdom appears to be in retreat. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. If it were, he would have told us. No, his kingdom is in our hearts and in our minds now and in heaven for eternity. In our hearts and minds now and in heaven for eternity. So the question is, do I look for him to reign over the earth or do I look for him to reign over me? Over the earth or over me? Where do I want his kingdom to be? So Jesus had answered him, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The reason Jesus came into the world was to testify to the truth, the reality of God, the need for salvation and the way of the cross and the truth of the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the truth. You know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the truth. Jesus came to testify to himself that the world might be saved. But Pilate isn't interested in who Jesus is or why he is. He's only interested in himself. His Passover morning, his job, his standing, this world he's made for himself. So he responds as the world responds today with an incredibly deep question that's just passed off as a quip. And he says, what is truth? What is truth? Today, that seems that Pilate's question is kind of one of the central questions of our country and our world, right? What is truth? When I was young, I should hear my dad say that. Strange to come out of my lips. When I was young, I never heard anyone say anything about speaking my truth or speaking your truth or living my truth or living your truth. Oh, he's living his truth. No, truth was an absolute. There was a truth, and it could be found, and the Bible was the place to begin to find it. Now moral relativism is all the rage, and the truth is whatever I believe it is, there's no standard. A man can decide that his truth is that he's a woman, and no one is permitted to argue with his truth. There's no standard by which he can be judged. What we need to see is that this moral relativism, this untethering of truth from a standard of truth, is an attack against Jesus Christ himself. It's a powerful tool in Satan's arsenal. 
if Jesus isn't the truth, if he isn't the truth, and he's just a truth, then he isn't the only way to heaven. He isn't the way to salvation. He isn't the standard for people to listen to. He doesn't need to be obeyed, and it's perfectly fine to ignore him. He's just your truth. He's not mine. If Jesus is the truth, then objectively, he is the standard, the guidepost through which we find salvation and have true freedom from the lies of the enemy. This is an important thing. Jesus is the truth. So what is truth? Pilate asks that question, and the question Pilate asks really is an answer to that garden question all over again, right? It's when the arresting mob kept asking Jesus of, you know, kept saying, Jesus of Nazareth, right? The, The question Pilate first answered, Am I a Jew? It's it's all the same answer. What is truth? It's all the same answer to the question, who are you looking for? Who is it that you are looking for? Are you looking for Jesus, the great I am, the one who is king, the one who is truth? Or are you looking for a Jesus that's a good teacher? Are you looking to make yourself king? Are you looking to manufacture and live your own truth? Do you want the truth? Do you want a king and a lord? Do you want to really know and obey the living God? That's the question. That's the question we all have to answer. So back to verse 38. What is truth, retorted Pilate. Then he went out again to the Jews gathered there, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at this time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? So now it's the crowd's turn to answer the question, right? Who is it that you're looking for? Pilate's presented them with the innocent Jesus, the one who really is the king of the Jews. But are the people really looking for the king of the Jews, the great I am in the kingdom of heaven? They shout back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. No, we don't want God. We're more interested in politics. That's what they just said. We don't want God. We're more interested in our political leader. We want Barabbas who will help us fight the Romans. That's who we're looking for, a Messiah to save us from Rome, not one to save us from sin and from ourselves. I think, you know, it's interesting that you've had all these people over the two days, deny their interest in ever finding the real God. First, it's Judas and the temple guards and the Roman foot soldiers who want Jesus of Nazareth rather than the I am. Then it's the Jewish religious and secular leadership who have no interest in knowing God, but are interested in serving their own power, prestige, and graft. Then it's the Roman governor, the main guy in the whole area, and he'd rather not think about heaven at all. He had no interest in really knowing God. And now it's the people, the crowd who only a week earlier had sang, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And now instead they want a strong political terrorist rather than the God of heaven. They want a revolution, like the Beatles sang, right? You you, you say you want a revolution? Well, you know, we all want to change the world. They had the opportunity to choose the one who would change the whole world, but they were more interested in revolution. 
No one was looking for the one they desperately needed. None of them. So Pilate, who doesn't like this crowd, but is surprised by their attitude, he, he decides to take some action to mollify them and to make fun of the Jews in the process. He can kill two birds with one stone. So chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they slapped him in the face. Here once again, the Roman soldiers are speaking truth but in a mocking way. They should have been placing a crown on his head. They should have been robing him in purple. They should have been worshiping him as the king of the Jews. Instead, they made fun of him. They were Rome. They were on top. They wanted no authority over them, especially this Jew. So they missed the truth altogether. I also find it amazing in this story that Jesus keeps giving people second chances over and over and over again. He gives them multiple chances to change their hearts and minds about him. In the garden, he asks twice. He gives Annas repeated chances to change his tune. He effectively asks Pilate twice to seek him, even laying out exactly who he is to Pilate. And now through Pilate, he's giving the people another chance to choose to follow the God of heaven, the king of the Jews, rather than keep their focus on the things of this world. So once more, Pilate comes out to them, a second chance. And he said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. Done nothing wrong. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man, or I like how the King James says it, behold the man, here he is. They have another chance. Behold the man, see him, see his grace, his power, his innocence, see his love for you. Really look at this king who has no fault in him. Isn't he the one you're looking for? But the Jesus they have before them, the man God, that they are asked to look at. That is not the Jesus they want. Mm -mm. And if they can't have the Jesus they want, they want this one gone. I can't have the one I want. I don't want him at all. I want him gone. They don't want to think about him. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to worship him. They don't want to be challenged by him. They don't want to be accountable to him. They just want him gone especially Annas and Caiaphas and the chief priests and the officials. They want him dead, not just gone. Verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, Pilate sees a different Jesus than they do, right? I think at this point, he's really intrigued by this innocent man that can arouse such passion in his enemies. Why do they hate this guy so much? In Pilate's mind, perhaps, hey, maybe the enemy of my enemy isn't my enemy. Maybe he's not so bad. Let's, maybe I can, also, maybe I can tweak these Jews a little further. 
He knew they couldn't crucify Jesus. They'd be violating Roman law, and then he could actually finally get rid of them. So they would never take the bait. But he offered Jesus back to them anyway. And Annas and Caiaphas were the people they were for a reason. They wouldn't fall into stupid traps. They knew that they had to change the way that Pilate looked at Jesus. Pilate needed to see Jesus as something other than an innocent man and a non-factor to him. Instead, he needed, they, they needed Pilate to see Jesus as a threat. So they took action. Verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Oh, now it's Pilate who has to reevaluate the question, right? Who are you looking for? Who do you say I am? We know from Matthew that Pilate's wife had had a dream about Jesus and had warned Pilate not to mess with Jesus and to be really careful here. And now this man claimed to be the son of God. Perhaps her dream had some merit after all. Perhaps his wife wasn't crazy. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. I think of all the people involved in this story, even Judas, who'd witnessed all Jesus had done, Pilate gets the closest to the truth, the closest to looking for the real God, because he's developed a fear of Jesus, a fear of God, a fear of judgment for his part in this a fear that he is fatally, terribly in a place he doesn't understand, and he's in real danger for his person and his soul. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and Pilate is almost there. He's almost there. But he won't take that final step to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God. But at least he's afraid to actively oppose Jesus. Isn't that the place a lot of people get to? Don't we know a lot of people like that? I know I'm a sinner, and it's at least I'm not completely right. or completely in the right. And I, I'm afraid I may be in trouble, but I'm really not ready to lay down my life, to give up my personal autonomy, to hand over control to Jesus. Therefore, I'm just going to push him out of my mind. I'll deal with the fear when it comes. I, I won't be an anti-Christian, but I won't follow Christ either. Jesus is okay for you. He seems like a good thing. He's just not for me, or at least right now, maybe later. A lot of people get there. And that is just as dangerous a place as any other place outside being committed to Jesus Christ. And we'll see that with Pilate. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, and anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, Annas and Caiaphas have now succeeded. They've taken Pilate from seeing Jesus as an innocent to being afraid of Jesus to now seeing Jesus as a direct threat. He is now one who opposes Caesar. And if Pilate releases him, Pilate can be accused of treason. All the consequences that entails. 
Remember, Pilate's on thin ice with Rome already, having been reprimanded for his treatment of the Jews. All he needs now is to be branded a traitor. Now the Jesus he's looking at and he's looking for is the threat to him and his position, the threat that needs to be eliminated no matter what his prior thoughts about Jesus. So he decides to eliminate the threat in the most blameless way possible. He can maybe weasel out of any real blame for killing this innocent man, for killing the son of the gods, by giving the decision about what to do to Jesus back to his own people, who Pilate knows want him dead. You know... I think there's a danger there for us, too. Can we view Jesus not as Lord, but as a threat? As a threat to what we want to do. As a threat to our position, to our lifestyle, to our finances, to our autonomy. It's a good question for us. But even as Pilate is evaluating how to eliminate the threat of Jesus, God gives the people one more choice to recognize, one more chance to recognize Jesus as their king to see the truth that comes to salvation. This mercy is incredible, isn't it? Chance after chance after chance. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. So Pilate unknowingly speaks the truth. Here is your king. But again, horrifically, their true king is not who the people are looking for. They're presented with Jesus, but they're presented with the Jesus they do not want. Verse 15, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? The response to this question from the chief priests who are sworn to have one king, the great I am, about the response to Pilate's question here, shall I crucify your king? These chief priests, who of all people should have recognized the Messiah, who of all people should have known what happens to idolaters and what happens when priests sacrifice to idols and sacrifice in the high places to false gods and, con- and convict, they, these guys are going to convict themselves of blasphemy with their own answer to Pilate right here. They're going to condemn their nation to destruction which was to come shortly after. What's their response to Pilate? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answer. This is shocking. This is not a political response. This isn't them saying, our, oh, uh, our president is uh, Joe Biden. That's, that's not what they're saying, right? Caesar had declared himself a deity, a god, He was actively worshipped in the empire. The chief priest knew he was considered a god, and to declare their allegiance to Caesar was to declare their allegiance to a false god. These were supposed to be the religious leaders, and they'd just shown they had no faith in God at all. For their own position, to get what they want, to not have to recognize Jesus' authority, they're willing to abandon God and swear allegiance to a false god. Now, we must be very careful that we do not profess Christ with our mouths on the weekends and then pledge allegiance to false gods during the week. Are we Christ's 
or are we the world's? One path leads to eternal reward, incredible blessings for eternity, and the other to destruction. And if not to eternal damnation for those who never truly believe, at least to those who believe, to a loss of heavenly rewards. So like the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities were punishment for the idolatry of the priesthood and the people, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70 and the diaspora of the Jews can be traced directly to this moment. The election to choose the false god Caesar over the true God Jesus Christ. Idolatry. Pilate was able to get his outcome and to say he could wash his hands of guilt by blaming the Jews for the crucifixion. But in reality, it was his own soul he was condemning by not recognizing the authority of Jesus. Verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Everybody could read it. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's the choice. That's the choice, isn't it? That's the answer to the question, who is it you're looking for? Is it Jesus of Nazareth or is it the king of the Jews? Is it the Jesus you choose for yourself, who you can make up to be what you want, the Jesus that has no authority over your life and demands nothing, the good teacher, the leader of my social club, one of the many ways to heaven, Jesus of Nazareth? Or is it the King of the Jews, the great I am, the one who created you, sustains you, and has a claim on your life, the one who calls you to be a living sacrifice, the one who calls you to take up your cross, the one who calls you to look at everything else as rubbish, compared to him. Who is it that you're looking for? Who is it that you choose? I don't know if you know the movie Talladega Nights and Ricky Bobby. It's a great conversation in there which Ricky Bobby says, oh, the Jesus I like is the baby in the manger. So that's the Jesus I pray to. It's baby Jesus, dear baby Jesus. Do you prefer the baby in the manger, the Jesus you can imagine, the Jesus who can be whatever you want him to be? Or are you like Paul? Do you prefer to look at the cross, the resurrected Lord, and to serve him, to be heavenly minded? It's your choice who you serve this day. It's your choice who you seek, and it's your choice who you find. We're going to pray, and then we're going to have a time of communion together where we can really think about this choice. Father God, we just are so thankful to you mm, that you loved us so much 
that you loved each of us so much, you've given us opportunity after opportunity to recognize you for who you are and the authority you should have in our lives and to hand ourselves over to you, to choose the king. Help us to go out from here changed, Lord. Help us not to encounter you, the real you, and then go back to who we have always been, but help us to go out of here, Lord, just wanting all there is. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. So as we head into communion, it's a time for choosing. Communion is a recognition of who Christ is and what he accomplished for us on the cross. It's a time to decide to worship him as our king, as the great I am, and to lay our self-serving ideas of him beside and instead worship him in spirit and in truth, remembering his incredible great love and sacrifice for us.